0: Welcome to this episode of Lawrence University Environmental Justice Podcast. My name is Rebecca and my pronouns are she, her, hers.
1: My name is Elizabeth. I also use she, her, hers.
2: My name is Fry. I use they, them, theirs. So in this podcast, we're going to be talking about environmental justice in the context of activism. There are three main types of organizations that may focus on environmental justice issues. These include environmental justice organizations social justice organizations, and plain old environmental organizations. In Appleton and in the Fox Valley, there actually
0: aren't any organizations that focus specifically on environmental justice. So we got an idea of what kind of environmental justice work is happening here by talking to local social justice and sustainability-focused organizations.
1: To get a sense of what a sustainability-focused or an environmental organization is doing in Appleton, we spoke with the Appleton chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. The Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL for short, is an international, nonpartisan grassroots organization that advocates for national climate change policies. The organization seeks to build upon shared values to create effective policies instead of allowing partisan divides to prevent climate action. The organization is currently advocating for the passage of the Carbon Fee and Dividend Proposal. This bill would put a predictable, steadily rising price on carbon to reduce carbon emissions. The collected fees from the tax would be returned in equal amounts to U.S. households as a monthly energy dividend. To learn more about how this organization works and how it engages with environmental justice, we turn to our first guest, Jill Mitcheller. Jill is currently the Wisconsin State Co-Coordinator and appleton slashbox fox Cities Chapter Co-Leader of CCL, and she's been involved with the organization for four years. She initially joined the organization because she's concerned about the children of today and what kind of world we're leaving for them. We'll start with what does the Citizens Climate Lobby do?
3: Okay, so the Citizens Climate Lobby is a grassroots organization of over 100,000 volunteers okay, nationwide, and there's 500 chapters in the world, and 24 in Wisconsin. And so we work for political will for climate action at a federal level. So we have a specific sort of policy that we're promoting and have been for eight years now, and we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, but the carbon fee and dividend is what we're promoting. Late last year, it was introduced in the House and the Senate. Oh. And now this year, it's been reintroduced in the House, so we're waiting for the Senate to introduce it. It It's called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, Mm -hmm. HR 763, (laughs) (laughs) and that is what we're promoting. That is a a laser focus that our organization has, and there's a lot of things you can do about environment. Right, and a lot of organizations are doing a lot of great things, but we are focused on that bill. And in a way that is, I think, different from other organizations because I really support it because it's bipartisan and we want to see both sides come together for a solution that will last. Because as the administration changes, as we know it will, we can have the law be rolled back. It has to be something that everyone can agree to for 50 or 100 years or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that it's really important to get both sides on board, and we have members of all parties, I guess. You know, independents too, and girl, uh, you know, all of mm-hmm. them are part of CCL. So I love that, and we work in uh, respectful and listening, and it's all about relationships. And I really love the way that CCL works. Mm-hmm. So <laughs>
1: that's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about what that bill specifically wants to do?
3: Right. So what it does, finally, is put a price on carbon. And I, I just feel like for too long we've been shooting pollution into the air for free. And who's paying the price of that? We are, right, in our health and in our air and now the climate. So it finally puts a price on the carbon and CO2. We put the price on it upstream the farthest upstream that we can, so where the, where the fossil fuels come out of the ground, at the well, the port of entry, the mine, that's where the price, and it's based on how much pollution is released based on that product. So it's $15 a ton of CO2 would be charged to the people who are extracting it, right? Mm-hmm. And then every year it goes up by $10. So it's steadily increasing. It won't be a sudden change, big change, but pretty quickly it will ramp up. (sighs) And at the same time, renewable energy will become cheaper by comparison, right? And so we think it's a really great way. And economists and scientists agree that putting a price on carbon is the first best solution. Now it's probably (laughs) not gonna be the only solution, right? But it is definitely somewhere. It's so effective that we will get to a 40% reduction in 12 years. Oh, wow. which you know the IPCC reports that we have 12 years so that gets yeah. us really getting really close to where we need to be and um, again it's not the only answer but 90% reduction by 2050 so this we are I'm really confident that this is uh, the way to go and the, and the other half of it is and this is really important the money comes back to the people mm-hmm. in a dividend okay? Oh, okay so all the money that's collected But the U.S. Treasury comes back in a monthly check in equivalent amounts to every resident of the United States. Very wealthy people probably won't think it's too much, but people on the low end of the income scale, that'll be a lot of money for them, you know? So I think that's really an important thing to note. Everybody gets the same amount, you know? We'll get the same as Bill Gates. He probably won't care that much about his (laughs) dividend, but so... And that, will, and that will offset the cost for people because, you know, those companies will start charging more for their products because they have this fee. But we'll have a check every month that we can use to pay for those extra costs or maybe people will choose to spend it on dental care or they'll get a green energy vehicle.
1: Is the check that people get expected to be enough that they would be able to
3: pay for all of those additional costs? Yes, and we've done a lot of research, and the, the Regional Economic Modeling Incorporated has done some research, and they do research for government organizations and others. They've studied it, and the majority of people, at least in the low and middle incomes, will come out ahead. Mm, awesome. So that's, that's really cool. exciting. <laughs> yeah, it really is.
1: Good. You mentioned um, allyship. How would you define good white allyship to communities of color in the climate justice
3: movement? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's that inclusivity. Right, and just understanding that we have to step, step back and let the people who have the life experience talk about that. Mm-hmm. And um, as a white person, I just don't feel like I have a lot of understanding, but I'm so open to it and that I know that it's listening that will help us get there. Well, going back to bipartisanship, how do you go about that? Right, so that's kind of challenging especially in Wisconsin, because you know, and I think everywhere, you know, it's really polarizing right now. So we have to actually, in our monthly meetings, I have to be really careful because people will say things like, hmm, you know, that old governor or whatever. And I have to remind people, we have people in this room that may have voted for that person or that leader. And so we try to keep, keep away from things not related to climate because they think that issue sort of binds us all together and you have people on both sides of the aisle that care about the climate right Mm -hmm. i guess that's the thing i try to keep it focused on that on the climate and how we can come up with solutions and and it has to be a solution that everybody can get behind so for example our bill collects money in a tax we used to call it a fee because it returns the money to the people, but mm-hmm. face it, it's a tax. Mm-hmm. It's carbon tax, and that's okay because the money does come back to the people. It doesn't grow the government, and conservatives don't want to see the government grow. They don't want to see more tax money going in, right? So that was that was one of the biggest bipartisan issues is to make sure that it doesn't grow the government. Revenue neutral.
1: I'd love to get your perspective on how you
3: define environmental justice. We know that those communities that are disproportionately impacted. Now, like I said before, they live it. And so they have the unique and valuable perspective on what could be done to fix it. And so whatever solution comes along, we need to listen and include their viewpoints as well.
1: Do you have strategies for trying to get people
3: to actually do things? Well, that personal relationship... So I didn't get to share that. We have these values in CCL. Focus is the first one. We are laser-focused on the bill. Optimism, so I'm hoping that that's coming through, but I really am optimistic. And we have patient persistence, so we know and we're seeing changes. And then relationships is the third one. So I know that if you have a relationship with a volunteer and make them feel like what their skills can bring and let them know how that can help, that's a really important way to get volunteers involved. So, and then the other two are integrity and personal power. So just knowing that I feel really empowered to do what I need to do in my community and get my volunteers in, engaged. And then, of course, bipartisanship. Do
1: you have any closing messages you'd like our listeners to hear?
3: My comment to leave you with is if we can get more people to contact Congress and let them know how important climate is in our mind. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: we were excited to meet with you and hear about this. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Another way that environmental justice work is being done locally is by organizations that are focused on social justice. One of these organizations is called ESTHER which is a grassroots nonprofit interfaith social justice organization focused on the Fox Valley region of Wisconsin. Esther Fox Valley does ongoing work related to transportation access, immigration justice, and prison reform, along with other areas of interest. Esther is associated on the state level with Wisdom, which is a collection of similar social justice-focused interfaith organizations throughout the state. Today we're interviewing Bill Van Lopik, who's the lead organizer of Esther Fox Valley. First of all, thank you very much for being here.
4: Thank you for asking me, Rebecca. Yeah, it's good oh, no. to be here.
0: Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the work that Esther does?
4: Yeah, and I would I would put it in a um, environmental justice framework, also. Mm-hmm. For example, we have an immigration task force. And the main thing that they're working on right now is, is driver's license for people who are undocumented. One of the things that we also, as we build a relationship with people who are undocumented, is understanding what was the situation where they came from. What were those those push factors that made them leave a country that they loved? And a lot of that, and I used to live in Central America, so I have a little bit of insight What is it that would motivate someone? I used to live in El Salvador to motivate someone to, to leave El Salvador, to come to the United States, to escape basically. And a lot of those are environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is related to climate issues. I've talked to farmers who traditionally Mm -hmm. plant coffee, but they say the seasons are so messed up now because of a changing climate. It's hard to make a living because of either too much flooding or too much drought. So those are definitely an environmental justice issue that I can't make a living doing agriculture like I used to. I need to find something else. There's nothing else in my country. The only place I have to go is maybe north. And then how do they deal with uh, the issues here once they're living here in the Fox Valley? And, And a big issue is I just need a driver's license to get to my job, to get my kids to school, to buy groceries. Basic human needs like that.
0: So a lot of the work that Esther does looks at global environmental injustices and tries to address them on a local level.
4: That's a very way to put, good way to put it. Yeah. You have to understand the whole issues of why someone maybe came here. And that, that gives us more compassion and more empathy. I mean, often the dominant narrative is, you know, uh, they've, done, they've broken the law and they've done something illegal and they need to get out. Well, you have to look at the total picture, why someone would leave a place that they love, where they grew up and where their family is, to maybe move, be pushed here because of those environmental injustices. And as, as you well know, the biggest emitter of carbon in the atmosphere that creates the climate issues is the United States. So in some ways, we're contributing to that push get out of your country. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand that that big picture. Another issue is prison reform, which is mm-hmm. a big thing we work on. And in there, I would, I guess I would make the distinction between the micro environment and the macro environment. Mm. Prison is a micro environment. For example, on solitary confinement, mm-hmm. I mean, that is the worst type of micro environment. And I'm talking about bad air, bad environment. Uh, just living in a cell for months, if not years, sometimes. I mean, that's just torturous. And um, not having access to going outside, seeing the sun, seeing the sky. And, th- and that occurs in, in institutions. Mm-hmm. And we've talked to many people who just haven't been outside for you know months. That is an impression of uh, environmental injustice yeah. <laughs> to us on a, on a micro scale, yeah. on a micro scale, you know.
0: And that's a type of environmental injustice that also can lead to health issues and oh, exactly. a variety of other, yeah. other problems.
4: Yeah. yeah. Another thing we're very supportive of is, and we work with the Menominee Indian India Tribe of Wisconsin on, as an ally in, in advocating to stopping the, what we call the Back 40 mine. Yeah which is in Upper Michigan, on the Menominee River, which is right on the banks of where their uh, ancestral homelands Mm -hmm. is, where actually their creation story starts right in the the banks of the Menominee River, where this uh, metallic sulfide mine is being proposed. Mm -hmm. And it's in Michigan, so our leverage is a little harder to do. Can't, you know, leverage our state representatives. But we still work and show support and try to leverage at least the EPA Mm -hmm. and the federal authorities. And they're leveraging Michigan state legislature, too.
0: And this is kind of backing up a little bit. I've already gotten kind of an idea of the answer to this based on your responses. But how would you define environmental justice?
4: Well, I believe everyone should have access to clean air, Mm -hmm. clean water, security, safe food to eat, food security. And when you're denied that, that is an injustice. You know, things that just are in the natural world that should be available to all of us at no cost. We should have that right. And when that right is taken away, that's an injustice. So environmental justice is having the right to all those things that our natural world provides us.
0: I like the definition. I think it's something I hadn't really heard before. One of the concepts that we've talked about that's related to environmental justice is how marginalized communities are often disproportionately impacted by environmental harm. And they're often excluded from decision-making and conversations about environmental issues or issues of environmental injustice. Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. So how
0: do you go about including marginalized communities in your work and in your decision-making process?
4: That's a, that's a great question, and it's very pertinent because uh, this weekend, Wisdom is having our, we have a regular retreat, and we're having it on the Menominee Indian Reservation. Mm. And there's a group, there's an organized group there on the, on the reservation called mini which is community rebuilders. And they're organized, and they're starting like a farm where they do some training and do food security and cultural appreciation, cultural understanding. Wisdom has traditionally been sort of an interfaith-based group, and I Miniconicum mean, is not. But we, we understand the importance, we share the same values. Mm-hmm. How can we work together and, and, and support each other and collaborate together? Mm-hmm. So we'll be meeting tomorrow on that. But it's that understanding. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with a lot of issues pertaining to mining. You know, native lands have been targeted mm-hmm. because they have forests on them. Mm-hmm. They have precious metals. Before, they were thought as worthless lands, mm-hmm. but now they're seeing they're seeing that the the resources mm-hmm. that are buried under the soil, you know, used to be especially in the Dakotas, where a number of tribes are. They thought that was wasteland. Now mm-hmm. it's seen as potential for energy, mm-hmm. for wind energy, for solar energy. So there is a, a threat to their sovereignty now for companies just coming in and they need to be at the table and they need to be strong and they need allies to say, you need to be at the table and we're here to support you whatever way we can. We won't take the lead. We will follow your lead to guard against your, your resources that you have.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: You know, if they want to put a wind power plant on your reservation, it's up to you. But those proceeds better go to you and not to some large multinational corporation somewhere. They need to benefit the tribe.
0: So it sounds like you really try to use a partnership model in working with and supporting the marginalized communities.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they need to have the lead. Mm -hmm. And not just, you know, we're going to have you at the table, but to take a lead on those issues. And that's with all of our issues. The people most impacted they need to be at the table. We talk about prison reform, we better have people who are formerly incarcerated, who know what it's like to help lead the discussion. If we're going to talk about immigration reform, we better have immigrants lead the way in in, in everything. That's what we hope to do. We don't always do as good a job as as I'd like, but that is our value and that's something we try to follow.
0: What are some of the obstacles you found or strategies that you found to be most effective in that
2: work.
4: Strategies that I found to be effective is persistence, Mm -hmm. showing up, just showing up in many regards, Uh, showing up at uh, meetings where decisions are being made. You may not be at the table, but you're in the audience and you can make your voice heard. And not just once, but showing up at a consistent basis and showing up in power, meaning in numbers, Mm -hmm. so you're not just a lone voice showing up with a group and say, you know, we're here representing a certain church, or we're here representing, I love it when people say, I'm I'm representing Esther. You know, representatives have town hall meetings. Oh, we show up in force at those town hall meetings Mm -hmm. and challenge them. What are you doing about this issue that's important to us? Mm -hmm. Meeting with representatives, you know, in their offices, and just being consistent and persistent and just being a pest in some mm-hmm. regards. You know, just making yourself a pest. Uh, you don't have to be, you know, liked. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be friends. But being respectful, but being a pest. That is, I found a, a good way. But showing up in, in, in numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing letters is good, but writing form letters and sending them off, yeah, they just, they go into, yeah. they disappear it's better to be in person.
0: Mhm. They can't ignore you. You can't <laughs> ignore you
4: if you're in their ear, if you're in their face.
0: Do you feel in that way some of Esther's work or some of your work serves as a bridge between communities that are most impacted and the people who are who have the power to change things?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Because for example, with someone who's undocumented, it's a huge risk mm-hmm. to put your face out there too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a, within wisdom, just this past week, a, a pastor who didn't have all of her legal papers, mm-hmm. been a pastor in a Lutheran church in Racine for 20 years. She was, uh, she was from Colombia. Her and her family were picked up by ICE mm-hmm. and just taken right from her home. Matter of fact, they were taken. They didn't even be able to lock the doors. And thieves came in and ransacked her house. That was just this Mm -hmm. week. And now she's detained and her family in uh, a Chicago ICE detention center. So in that regard, you need allies. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: There's people now writing letters, showing up at the detention center with signs and just showing in force that this person is, we're supporting this person. She's important to us. We want her in the community and those allies who have the freedom to be able to be out in public and not be afraid of being picked up or, or jailed. Mm-hmm. That is a right that we have, and we need to use that right. Same thing in prison reform. People who come out of prison, they are un, if they're under probation, can't really speak up too much. You know, for fear that their parole officer will, oh, I don't like what you're saying, you know, I may put you back in. Mm. You need allies to say, well, I can speak. I can speak. To me, that's the importance definitely of having those. Role. Yeah, and we need to assume that role, and that's part of our the privilege of citizenship, and that's greatly needed.
0: How... Does your organization go about mobilizing people, getting them involved?
4: Well, one of the fundamental tactics in, in organizing is a very basic one, is uh, building relationships. Mm-hmm. So on a regular basis, if I hear of someone who is you know, a person who's been impacted, I'll get their number, I'll get their name, call them up, say, let's, I'd like to get to know you, let's sit down and have coffee. And I tr- try to encourage all people within Esther. We need to be constantly building those, those relationships. And if you meet people at our task force, you say, why are you here? Well, you know, so-and-so over there invited me. Or, you know, we, we sat down, we had coffee. It's, and, it, and mostly it's listening, mm-hmm. listening during that time. What, what's important to you? and you find just this very rich conversation that you learn about people, that what's important to them, what motivates them, what gets them up in the morning, what what, what are they passionate about, you know? And everybody has something. And then saying, well, there's a place in Esther for you mm-hmm. to be able to act upon that, uh, that value that you have.
0: It's being really intentional. As being very them.
4: intentional, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have events, and people like that, interested in an e- event, and they'll come. But unless we have a follow-up, if they just come, and then they leave, and we don't see them again, then we've lost them. That's why if we have an event, we have people sign things up, and mm-hmm. then we sign, well, you're going to go, you should meet with that person, mm-hmm. and you should meet with that person to have these one-on-one conversations. Because that's what motivates people. It's mm-hmm. it's not through you know social media, it's not through letters, it's... It's through building up of uh, relationships.
0: So you have to have a strong group of volunteers to really. Make we that do. Happen. We have
4: Esther is. I mean, the whole thing is is incredible uh, base of volunteers mm-hmm. who are passionate about what is important to them, and their excitement brings in other people.
0: Well, the passion and excitement that you bring to these issues is really clear to me. So. Thank you so much for volunteering your time to talk to us about this.
1: Something that really stood out to me with both of these interviews was that both groups seem fundamentally motivated about people. So I think in a lot of ways the motivation behind the groups is concern for other people. So Jill talked about her concern for the nine-year-olds of today and her grandchildren as part of what drives her. And Bill also mentioned concern for people in his community and people like climate refugees. So I also really noticed how these groups are about people because the entire basis for how they work is also oriented around people.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that really makes these groups and these issues focused on environmental justice and not just environmentalism or sustainability, is that they center people in relationship to the environment and including the disproportionate impact that environmental issues may have on on people.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. Like, I think when Bill was talking about climate refugees, there could be one way to look at that that would be just environmental which would be to focus on the science of it or like deforestation or erosion of cropland, like whatever it may be. But because they incorporate that human element and the concern for what's happening to the people who typically would be farming, but then get pushed out, I think that that's a good part of what makes it environmental justice. Definitely. And I think although both groups do work on environmental justice
0: issues, they did seem to have slightly different definitions of what environmental justice even was, mm. which is interesting to me. Bill seemed to define environmental justice a little more broadly to encompass the social justice work that's done by
2: Esther. And Jill talked more about developing those relationships and getting out in the community and really trying to connect with everybody across a lot of like partisan lines, which is sometimes not the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. which definitely
0: relates to the different tactics that the two groups use also, because both are basically, in some ways, do a lot of political lobbying, and they both do this lobbying without money, which is a difficult task. So I think, like Fry mentioned, one of the main tactics that Jill talked about is developing relationships, and especially across party lines, and really working with people with authority in politics to achieve the goals of the organization. Bill talked more about being a pest and showing up in power and having strength in numbers and really not necessarily trying to come to a consensus, but rather forcing politicians to pay attention to their constituents. Whereas Jill's perspective really was more about meeting
2: politicians where they are and seeing what kind of shared values they could build on. Yeah, especially since CCL's goal is just on that bill, mm-hmm. that they can just focus just on that. Definitely.
1: Yeah, and I think something that I notice in terms of that showing up in power or that strength in numbers concept is that both groups really rely on getting a critical mass of people. And so maybe that's a critical mass in a, to an extent that convinces your legislator that you need to change or a critical mass of people to turn political opinion on an idea or a a sense of values. Um, But that seems like something that will be relevant to lots of types of activism. And maybe if we were to extend this idea outside of just these two groups, I think that's probably a fundamental need for any sort of nonprofit or grassroots organization, which is to get that critical mass of people to be behind you, whether they're actively volunteering or simply like writing one letter or something to a legislator. And I think in that as well, there's the importance of relationship building. Like for them to actually get that critical mass of people, they need to be actively building relationships within their organization. So Bill talked about that in terms of being really purposeful with going up to people, being intentional about asking them out for coffee, those sorts of things. And it's funny because we actually saw Jill do that in action. Um, I talked with her afterwards about connecting with our own environmental groups on campus and I'll take a chance to do a little plug for the Green Fire Club which I help lead on campus. It's been around I think since the 80s and it focuses on political environmental action. But we saw Jill um, connecting with us and using those strategies in the moment and we really were just focusing on building a relationship there. So I think that that's something that it seems like was really critical for both, both groups, was to purposefully reach out to people and maintain a relationship.
0: Another type of relationship building that came up in both interviews is using that as a method of allyship. And both interviews emphasize the importance of listening and allowing communities that are most impacted by environmental injustices Mm -hmm. to lead their work toward environmental justice.
1: Yeah, I think it was interesting. I remember Jill talking about how, as a white person, she didn't feel like she necessarily had the life experiences to always speak to the way in which someone would experience these issues.
2: So with Jill talking about how to be an ally to especially those who are low socioeconomic and communities of color that would be more impacted by these environmental changes. She talked about listening to the stories and given the space and platform, putting them at the forefront of leading regarding the issues that they face.
0: Yeah, and I think that really relates to the ideas about allyship and the deliberate work and relationship building that it takes to go about including Those marginalized groups and people of color and people in a lower socioeconomic uh, status in this work. Because these organizations are run by volunteers, people who are most impacted also may not be in a position to really be volunteering a lot of their time to be a part of these organizations or to add their voice to the conversation. So it probably takes some very deliberate relationship building and outreach. In order to actually include those perspectives that both organizations see as so important in terms of how they want to lead and who they want to have leading the movement. I think it really does come back to what Elizabeth said about people and people as the foundation and the motivation of, of activism in environmental justice. And I think In addition to that, we've seen that people are the driving force of this movement. And it's about, and a lot of what I learned from these interviews are about the types of power we have as people and the ways that we can use our power in environmental justice activism.
1: For sure. And I think it was really inspiring for me to listen to both of these interviews and be reminded that there is potential and you know good role models and examples of how when people come together and actively work on a problem that even just by existing as an organization and having enough people there that in and of itself is powerful and enough to help create change which is really heartening considering some, sometimes it feels difficult to engage with these issues when you think about how much money is involved and concentrated in terms of keeping things the way they are. And sometimes I have trouble feeling motivated and knowing what to do in in, in face of that. So it's really exciting and empowering to see strong examples of people pushing past that money barrier to actually create change that they want to see. Yeah, and I
2: think it goes to prove the point about how important community organizing is around these issues just because people do care. Just by seeing the numbers, even if they're just on sort of mailing list and they still signed up, they still care. And
0: I think some of what both of these organizations do and probably all environmental justice activism must do is really harness... The power of that passion that people do have for this issue in order to work to create environmental justice.
1: So if you are someone who also happens to have that passion, check out the description below because we have posted the contact info for both Citizen Climate Lobby and Esther Fox Valley. I'm sure that both groups would love to have more volunteers and it would be super rad if someone joined these organizations after listening to this podcast. Thanks so much and catch you later.